Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Speaking of loons, welcome to Dark Poutine. My name is Mike Brown. I'm the creator and host. With me, as usual, is my good friend and mouth noisy Scott Hemingway. <laughs> hey, everybody. Uh, say hello, Scott. Hi, everybody. Uh, <laughs> it's poutine time. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We are not experts on any of the topics we present, nor are we professional journalists. We're just two regular Canadians interested in crime and the darker side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double, and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Yum, yum, yum. This is episode 44, so our announcement has happened. It has. We are now part of the Curious Cast Podcast Network. Other Curious Cast podcasts are the ongoing history of new music with Alan Cross, Larry Gifford of CKNW's When Life Gives You Parkinson's, and our friend in Halifax, Jordan Bonaparte's popular Nighttime Podcast. Curious Cast is owned by Chorus Entertainment. Chorus is a leading Canadian media and content company that creates and delivers high-quality brands and content for audiences around the world. Chorus owns Canadian TV properties such as Global Television, Crime Plus Investigation, History, IFC, National Geographic, Showcase, and many more you probably watch. Chorus owns 39 radio stations across Canada's top markets. As well... Many content properties sold in over 160 countries globally. What this partnership means for us is access to more professional production assets, including access to global TV and news radio audio archives. They go back for years. As well, you've heard in the previous two episodes, we also now have unlimited access to a professional music archive. This allows us to up our dramatic storytelling game significantly. They'll also be helping us pay the bills revenue-wise with ads that you'll begin to hear on all of our shows, including our entire back catalog. We are super excited to have joined the Curious Cast Podcast Network. Thank you folks for considering us and for partnering with us. It's exciting to be in at the beginning with them. I agree. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. On with the show. We had a few requests for the subject we're presenting in this episode. One of note was from Samantha Meadows, who goes by Sam. I met Sam at a Tim Hortons in Sault Ste. Marie on my way back home from this summer's trip. Oh, I remember. I remember hearing her because her boyfriend stayed in the car, right? Terrified of you? No, actually, he was probably like had a sniper rifle trained at my head. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, she spoke to me about this case, and I challenged her to send me more details, which she did. Oh, wow. She did a lot of research on this. Sam, welcome. So thank you, Sam, for giving me such a great starting point to dig in further to this case. Yeah, that's so awesome of you, Sam. The events presented in this episode center around the brutal slaying of 29-year-old Sault Ste. Marie resident Wesley Hollum. On January 8, 2011, Wesley attended a party at a rundown flop house at 30 Wellington Street East in downtown Sault Ste. Marie. This party would be Hollum's last. 
Three days later, Wesley's headless, bare torso was found floating in Coldwater Creek. Three months to the day after the discovery of Wesley's torso, his right foot and his badly damaged head were found at a border refuse processing plant in Michigan, USA. He'd been disposed of like so much trash. The three men involved in Wesley's killing were apprehended only days after, but the matter was not to be resolved until late July 2016, over five and a half years later. The eventual outcome of the case left Wesley's family, friends, and the community horrified. Many felt justice had not been served. This is Murder in the Sioux, the slaying of Wesley Hollum. This is new to me, so I'm excited to hear this as it unfolds here. As I started to read and do more research, I started to feel angry. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah I, I, I got a little angry doing this, so let's get through it. That means it's you're emotionally invested and I passionate. I was definitely uh, passionate about it. Yeah. Uh, Sioux St. Marie, referred to by the locals as the Sioux, is a steel town on Highway 17 split down the middle by the St. Mary's River initially, but also by a border since the end of the War of 1812. So half of the city is in Michigan, USA, and the other half, the part we're concerned with, is in Ontario. The Sioux, with its metro region, is a city of around 78,000 people. It's situated 700 kilometers from Toronto in northern Ontario along Lake Superior, and close by is Lake Huron. Okay, okay. So near Toronto, that's not very far, 700k. It was originally populated by people of the Ojibwe First Nation who called it Bawitigong, or Place of the Rapids. Mm. It was founded as Sault Ste. Marie by French Jesuit missionaries in 1668, making it one of the oldest European settlements in Canada and, I guess, North America. Mm. The settlement served as an important waypoint along the trading routes of the day. Okay. So fur trading, all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. In 1888, Sault Ste. Marie was incorporated as a town. What else happened in 1888? Do you know, Scott? Um, You were born? No, serial killer. Serial killer. Yep. Jack the Ripper. Oh, oh. A little, uh, little far away. Yeah, but- A bit of distance He did his thing. Suit. Whenever I see 1888, I immediately think Jack the yeah. Ripper. Well, now I shall as well. Thanks, Mike. You're welcome. <laughs> the year before becoming a city in 1911, the year my grandmother was born- Oh, uh, the Sioux gained attention after Italian immigrant Angelina Napolitano slew her abusive husband and became the first to attempt the battered woman defense in Canada. Oh, wow. This fascinating story itself may be a future episode of Dark Poutine. I so, was just going to say that. Yeah, Sioux yeah. St. Marie will we'll definitely talk about some other things in the Sioux. Yeah, we're coming back, Sioux. Yep. Before and after World War II, the population of the Sioux began to grow as steel became its major industry. Hmm. Algoma, the city's largest employer, has over 4,000 employees at its main plant and tube mill. A tube mill? Do they mill tubes? I don't know. Oh. I would assume that. They mill tubes. <laughs> That's all, it, all the tubes you're using out there, folks, were made there. I don't know this. <laughs> don't make things up like <laughs> that. It's fun. Uh, by a large margin, the two biggest visible minorities in the area are in order, indigenous peoples, followed by Métis. Mm -hmm. People in the Sioux love the outdoors, cottages and lake boating in the summer, hunting and snowmobiling in the winter. All that sounds fantastic, minus the hunting. I'm not much of a hunter, but uh, the rest sounds glorious. We used to go hunting, quote unquote, and never shoot anything except trees and, and bushes and bottles. Well, they kind of deserved it. We called it walking with weapons. It wasn't really <laughs> hunting. Sault Ste. Marie has been home to many notables, in particular NHL hockey players and coaches like Paul Maurice, yeah. current coach of the nearby Winnipeg Jets, yep. NHL Hall of Famer Phil Esposito. Oh, good old Phil Esposito. Ron Francis uh -huh. and Ted Nolan. Well, some big names. Some really big names. Yeah, in the hockey world. In fact... The Sioux's OHL Greyhounds and junior teams have iced players who went on to have massive NHL careers. Hmm. Jerry Cheevers. Okay. Paul Coffey. Wow. And number 99 himself, the oh, great one, Wayne Gretzky. Yeah, good old Wayne Gretzky. As well as others, all hmm. laced up their skates there. Oh, wow. Quite yeah. 
quite the uh, ground for developing players over there. It's a hockey town, yeah. they say. Apparently. Another person of note is neurologist and first female Canadian astronaut in space, Roberta Bondar. Sweet. That's kind of cool, actually. It really You've is. You've got brawn on that other side. And then you got a bit of brains there for sure with uh, Roberta. It doesn't get more brainy than neurologist. Neurologist astronaut. Yeah. Yes. Jeez, what a what a combo. You're right. <laughs> when I arrived there this past summer, I noticed a lot of large pickup trucks. My little <laughs> Mazda did not fit in so well. It seemed like a rugged town full of hardworking, no-nonsense folk. Yeah. And my conversations with Dark Poutine listener and supporter, Sam Meadows, confirmed that. There's a feeling of a darker underside to the small city, though, too. Oh, interesting. I've been to a few cities where you just have that sense, uh, usually smaller towns where you have that sense of, oh, there's just something... Like Surrey. Yeah, well, that's not very, like, hidden. We're not small. That's not hidden, either. It's yeah. like... <laughs> An overseas company purchased Algoma during tough times and ran up debt around town. Unable to pay its creditors, Algoma laid many people off and declared insolvency. This put some small businesses in such a bad place that they had to fold up shop. Jeez, Algoma. Come on, man. Exactly. Jeez, classic Algoma. Trust for Algoma as a company and an employer was broken and resentment grew in the city. Yeah, I can imagine. As unemployment in the town rose, so did the drug and alcohol issues of many of the Sioux's disillusioned youth and young adults. Yep, yep. Drug and alcohol abuse had always been a problem in the Sioux, but... Mm. But it was in many small cities and towns. Yeah, absolutely, and still is, sadly. Earlier this year, fueled by attention on the economic issues in the area, their, quote, dirty little secret was exposed to the world. Ooh. Much to the embarrassment of Sioux residents, W5 and Vice came to the town and made a documentary called Steel Town Down, Overdose Crisis in the Sioux. Oh, no. The documentary covers struggles with opiate addiction and some of its residents, as well as the effects on an overloaded and underfunded system. The documentary claims that five people OD in the Sioux every day, but we're unable to corroborate this. It's so sad when you hear about opioid addiction ravaging through towns, struggling to find employment or jobs, and just the death of the youth that seems to follow. It's just, it's just terrible. We'll post a link to this film in the show notes on darkpoutine.com if you want to watch it. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to. It's this part of the Sioux community that Wesley Hallam was involved in when he died. Hmm. Wesley Raymond Hallam was born on November 15th, 1981. Wesley loved fishing with his grandpa Bob. The two were together when he caught his first fish, a gray trout, at Ranger Lake. Oh. Wesley's grandma remembers Wesley as loving cuddles and always being affectionate, even in the last days of his life. Oh, that's sweet. Wesley's sister Shannon shared, quote, My brother was a lovely, quiet, shy little boy. Growing up, he loved playing sports, hockey, football, but his big love was boxing. That meant growing up watching all of the volumes of Rocky over and over again. Wesley loved family. He was a mama's boy, and we spent every weekend growing up going to our grandparents' house. Wesley, as a teen, seemed to have lost his way and got in with the wrong crowd. There started his petty crimes and on and off stays in jail. I knew the whole time this was not the real Wes and prayed for change. God, that's got to be tough to watch as a, as a family member watching your brother yes. slowly spiraling down. And I know that's the feeling that my family had when I was going through this. This is why I started to have a very big connection to this. Mm -hmm. Wesley struggled off and on with drugs and alcohol. He'd been in and out of jail for a variety of reasons. His family always felt he wasn't getting the help he needed behind bars. He was not being rehabilitated. Mm -hmm. His family believed if only he'd learned to trade in prison, Wesley may have had a chance. Well, that's the old debate in, in regards to the prison systems, are they set up to rehabilitate or to punish? Yeah. You know, and sadly, it's typically to punish when it should be rehabilitated. It's called correctional now and not penal anymore, but I don't know how much correcting actually happens. Yeah. No, it, it seems like it's set up to punish, not to try to make sure that when these individuals come out, they're better people. He'd spent almost two years of his life in prison. Hmm. We were able to find articles from Sue Today indicating that Wesley had been arrested for assault causing bodily harm in 2004 
aggravated assault with a weapon in 2009, and then again in spring of 2010 for breach of his release conditions for the 2009 events. He'd get out and get back into the same cycle, mm-hmm. doing the same drugs with the same people in the same places. It, Wesley loved his Budweiser. Exactly the, the challenge with not being rehabilitation centers. It's the age-old story of addiction, that all except the prison parts that I know personally very well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The small town mentality didn't help either. Once you had a past, it was no easy feat to overcome, mm-hmm. even if you're willing to do what you can to set things right. This is something else that I've also had experience with. Well, the strengths of small towns are also the weaknesses of small towns. Everybody knows everybody. According to his mother, Sandra, Wesley was trying to turn his life around in the months before his death. Wesley was a father. He and an ex had had a little boy when Wesley was 24. His son was only five years old at the time of Wesley's death, but he'd begun to think about the effect that his lifestyle would have on his son as he grew up. Jeez. Wesley had moved south of the Sioux and taken a job in a potato factory. He liked his work there. He was trying to make a clean break from his old life and be a better father to his son. Good for him. He was even being considered as a superintendent at an apartment building. Things really did seem back on track for Wesley. Yeah, that's fantastic. Sandra missed her boy, though. She begged him over and over to come home for Christmas in 2010. Yeah. I've read a few articles where Sandra beats herself up, believing if Wesley had not come home, he'd still be alive. Oh, shit. Such is the lot of the loved ones of murder victims. Many think... If only uh, there was something I had done differently. Yeah, and it haunts them for, for the rest of their lives. Wesley Hollum came home in early December 2010. He fell right back in with the same crowd. Oh, God, yeah. On December 2nd, 2010, Wesley Hallam was seen accompanying a man and a woman. While Hallam looked on, the pair assaulted a 32-year-old mother of three over a drug debt. Mm. The victim of the assault later claimed Wesley had stopped the beating, saying he felt nauseated by the blood. Mm. The man and woman dragged the victim into the bathroom, where the male said he was going to stab her and leave her to bleed out. Jeez. Wesley again stopped the male, saying he knew that someone must have overheard and that the cops might already be on their way. The others agreed and left with him, leaving the beaten but grateful woman in the tub. Mm. She refused to name Wesley Hallam as the third man when she reported the incident two days later, initially claiming she did not know him, although she did. When the matter went to trial months later, Wesley had been dead for almost six months. We have no idea if these two events are related, but interestingly, there are some parallels to Wesley's case, as we will hear later, Hmm. even after trying to escape by moving away. Yeah. He got sucked right back in again. Yeah, that's the challenge. When trying to improve your life and recover, you, you can't come around the same people. I had to move away. Yeah, exactly. It's too easy to fall back into those old ways. I don't think I would have ever cleaned up my act had I not moved mm, really, all eh? the way across the country. Yeah, I was staying sober back there, but I think it was just a matter of time. Yeah, yeah. People used to say to me things like, why don't you just stop? Oh, that's all you had to do. In the middle of addiction, that seemingly simple solution offered by the kind-hearted non-addict is like trying to solve the most complicated calculus formula or come up with the unified theory while driving an indie car with no brakes at top speed. It's the same when I was dealing with all my depression and everybody would just placate you with those, you know, it'll get better, just hanging in, and well-intended. But frustrating to hear when you're in that when you're in that place. It ain't that easy or mm. simple. Good God, no. Wesley spent time with his family over the holidays. Family was important to him. On his visit home, he visited with his mom, sister, grandparents, and his son. Wesley and his mom took his son shopping five days before Wesley was to go missing. Wesley, doting on his little boy, filled the shopping cart with things the youngster needed and wanted. Upon returning home to his mother, the youngster exclaimed, Mommy, Daddy wants me to go to a Blue Jay game with him. This was a dream he'd never realize. (sighs) I guess now it's time for a break. Yes, please. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
On the evening of January 7, 2011, a party was ramping up at the well-known drug den at 30 Wellington Street East in Sault Ste. Marie. This house was occupied by Eric Shane Joseph Miro, a man of Ojibwe descent. He was well known in the Sioux, both to police and members of the community. Eric had been up partying for two days already and wanted to keep the party going. Miro, at 25, had a long history with drugs, both selling and using, violence and crime. Many were afraid of him as he was unpredictable. He'd gotten away with more than a few crimes as people were afraid to testify against him. In fact, Miro was so violent that police had an order which required him to report into them every Friday. One can see why. He's a big guy, about 6'1 and 200 pounds and covered in tattoos. He'd left school in the seventh grade and made his money dealing drugs. Weed and alcohol got things rolling at the party. People started getting text messages from the girls in the house about the get-together. At about 9 p.m., Ronald Albert Mitchell, who had been living in a room upstairs with his girlfriend, arrived. Mitchell, 26, was a smaller guy around 5'8 and 160 pounds. He was an abuser of alcohol regularly and was addicted to crack and heroin at the time. Not long after Mitchell's arrival, harder drugs began to make the rounds at the party when a drug dealer showed up. At 9.30, Dylan Albert Jocko and his girlfriend arrived at the residence. Jocko, 26, had been dealing and using since he was 11 years old. He too was a Jibway and a cousin of Eric Miro's. Jocko had made it to grade nine before dropping out. He drank too much and was heavily addicted to crack. After doing just enough crack to get going, Jocko, out of money, left the party. Around 11 p.m., Jocko came back with a TV set that he'd just stolen. He didn't have cash, so he'd ripped off the TV earlier, knowing that there would be someone at the party willing to take the TV off his hands for crack. He was correct. The people showing up for this get-together were not exactly pillars of the Sault Ste. Marie community. Throughout the evening, people showed up with a litany of drugs, as well as booze, weed and hash. There was powder and crack cocaine, Oxycontin and other prescription pills, fentanyl and heroin. If you wanted to go up, down, or sideways, it was there. After a brief visit with another friend, Wesley Hallam showed up at the house around 11.30 p.m., Wesley was no shy retiring flower either. He was a large man at 6'1 and went about 217 pounds. He'd brought a knife with him too. He'd taken it from his buddy's place earlier in the evening. It wasn't unusual for Wes and his friends to carry knives, but this knife in particular, what was carved into the hilt, would be one of the factors in the chain of events leading to Wesley's death. Music was blaring. People were shooting up in the kitchen, and the living room was packed with visitors in various states of intoxication. All the elements were now present for what was to be Wesley Hallam's last night breathing. The, the amount of drugs involved in this case so far is, is not shocking, but uh, staggering. Wesley came into the living room where he found his friends Eric Miro and Ron Mitchell snorting powder cocaine from a glass table. Like you do. Eric and Ron had kicked Wesley out a week prior after he was making, quote, unwanted sexual advances toward a woman in an upstairs bedroom. She'd called out for help. Yeesh. So they dragged him out. Yeah. They were surprised that he was here, though. They invited Wesley over, and he took part in the powder cocaine, as well as drinking alcohol. It's claimed also that Wesley also contributed to the drugs in the room with his own supply. Mm. At one point, Wesley took out his knife and showed it to the crowd gathered around the table. It was said that he didn't do anything in a threatening way. He was acting proud of this blade. It was a double-bladed folding knife with a swastika engraved on it. Oh, dear Lord. Dylan Jocko, of indigenous descent, took issue with the swastika, but Jocko was only 5'5", and a little bit of a smaller guy, so... Well, but kudos to him for right. voicing his displeasure at the swastika. 
As many know, this is the symbol widely used by Hitler's Nazis in World War II and has since been adopted by white supremacy groups. Yeah, yeah. After Jocko noted that there were a lot of indigenous people at the party, Wesley put his knife away. Jocko and his girlfriend moved to the kitchen to do more drugs away from Wesley. After a while, Miro, Mitchell, and Hallam decided they should take the party upstairs where there wouldn't be enough room for the many leeches wanting a snort of their coke. A few people followed. Hallam carried the plate up the stairs to Miro's bedroom where they proceeded to do lines off the dresser. Ron asked where Dylan Jocko was, and Eric Miro went off to find him, telling the others to wait. Mm -hmm. okay. While Miro was out of the room, according to witnesses, the argument began. Mm. Perhaps upset about Jocko's earlier snub, Wesley Hallam questioned Ron Mitchell about the need for Jocko's attendance, calling Jocko a goof. Not a goof. In the ex-con criminal community, goof is one of the worst things you can call someone. Really? It's like calling him a child molester or a rat. Okay. You didn't know this? No. Neither of those things, obviously, are looked upon favorably. Yeah. When Ron challenged Wesley for calling Jocko a goof, Wesley got angrier, calling Ron a goof, too. Ooh, having a goof off. The two began pushing and shoving each other. Ron took a swing at Wesley, and the fight was on. Hmm. Wesley, the larger of the two, quickly got the upper hand, punching Ron in the face. Hmm. Miro, who had found Jocko smoking crack in the kitchen, heard the crashing and banging upstairs. Miro ran upstairs and, according to some, pulled Wesley and Ron apart. Others say Miro joined in the fight right away, hmm. tackling Wesley. Oh, okay. Yeah. Here's where the things get murky. Yeah. Witnesses claim that Wesley was the first to pull his knife, and Ron Mitchell pulled his soon after. The two swung their blades at each other. Jeez, they just can't end well. No. That's not, yeah. Ugh. Jocko joined in to help Mitchell, and he punched Wesley in the back of the head. There are a couple of versions of the story here. In this one, witnesses said as Wesley fell backward, Ron had taken a swipe with his blade. If this is true, this may have been when Wes received what would be a fatal slash to his neck. Some accounts say Wesley was not stabbed at this point. Depending on which version of the story you believe, it's at this point that either Jocko and Mitchell or all three of them got Wesley's blade away from him and it fell out of its hilt as it hit the floor. Now that Wesley was disarmed, one would think the fight was over. Yeah. You just remove the guy from the house, right? Totally, clearly. That did not happen. Oh, no. All three began punching and kicking Wes, now disarmed. And apparently, what happened next is where it gets even more cloudy. Yeah. Other witnesses said that Wesley wasn't stabbed at all until after the initial scuffle. Mm -hmm. So, some witnesses claim, especially in the disputed statement of fact, that it was clear Wesley was dying from a stab wound to his neck and was bleeding profusely. Mm-hmm. Miro, Jocko, and Mitchell then moved Wesley to the bathroom. Oh. Do you see the parallel from the case previous now, where the other woman was taken to the bathroom? Mm -hmm. Oddly left out of the statement of fact, some said Wesley continued to fight as his assailants dragged him into the bathroom to the tub. And that is where the actual stabbing took place. Yeah. It, mm. From a Northern Hoot article on the case, quote, Several witnesses heard Hallam pleading for his life many repeating that they heard Hallam crying out, why are you doing this? You can't take me out like this. Eric, why are you doing this to me? I don't want to be taken out. Please, bro, stop. <sighs> One witness that had been using drugs in a separate bedroom walked by the bathroom after the door was shut and heard Hallam's voice. This witness described Hallam's voice as terrified, and he was saying repeatedly, please, no, Please don't. Oh, God. So The fear and terror. But, but here's the thing, Scott. Mm -hmm. This doesn't make it into the statement of fact. Because of the drugs? Over the next few minutes, while begging for his life, Wesley had been stabbed over 40 times. Uh. Many of them were defensive wounds. What is not disputed is that Wesley died from exsanguination due to the wound in his neck there in the tub. Mm, okay. Some of the wounds, like those in his head, were inflicted by Eric Miro, now wielding his own blade, 
and these were perimortem or close to the time of death. Okay, yeah. If the statement of facts is to be believed, it was Ron Mitchell's initial blows that were fatal. Mm-hmm. One severed Wesley's jugular and carotid artery, which according to experts later on, would have caused irreparable harm and led to Wesley's death. Okay, I'm following. However, even Jocko himself told a different story in a police interview, which he later backed away from. Okay. These came out in the preliminary hearing after, but were also not in the statement of fact. Oh, wow. Quote, this is from the Northern Hoot again. Quote, Jocko recounts that Hallam was alive in the tub, pleading for his life, begging, help me, help me. Jocko recalled Miro saying, no help for you, before bending over and cutting Hallam's throat. Oh my God. End quote. Yeah. This was also corroborated by another witness whose testimony didn't make it into the statement of facts. Furthermore, the statement of facts should indicate that police found significantly more blood evidence in the bathroom than on the floor in the bedroom. It does not. Wow, okay. Miro, Jocko, and Mitchell argued about what to do next. Miro threatened witnesses at the party, telling him they weren't going anywhere. He said they were all involved and they had to help out. Holy shit. Two of the women at the party were later charged and did time for their assistance in cleaning up the scene of the crime, which even involved smashing all the tiles in the bathroom bleaching the floor and pulling up floorboards. Wow, okay. Eric Miro, Dylan Jocko, and Ron Mitchell set about dismembering Wesley in the tub with power tools after he died. Oh, jeez. Wesley's head, hands, and feet were removed and tossed into a dumpster behind the station mall and garbage bags. Mm-hmm. Wesley's bare-chested torso, still wearing his blue jeans, was wrapped in a blanket, put into a vehicle, and driven around while Miro, Jocko, and Mitchell tried to figure out where to dump it. They headed out to the outskirts of town, and at Landslide Road, they saw the creek and stopped. This is a really disgusting crime. Yes. Like, really, really, really disgusting. Very much so. Wesley's body was carried down a slope and tossed into Coldwater Creek. A witness was later found who claimed he'd seen the three men climbing back up the slope that night. Mm. Miro told the crew that they should all leave town. Jocko refused to leave, but Miro Mitchell and Mitchell's girlfriend all split on January 10th, 2011 in a car for Thunder Bay heading west. Hmm. The next day, people will walk people the next day, people walking along Landslide Road saw a bare-chested torso floating in a creek. They called the cops. I couldn't imagine. I I could not imagine stumbling across something like that. No kidding. That would be horrible. Like, that's a trauma unto itself. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's said that uh, somebody who was there and found him actually knew who it was. Oh, really? Eh? Yeah. Oh, God. But that's not confirmed. Yeah, yeah. The media also started reporting on the grisly discovery. Police found Wesley Hallam's wallet and keys in the pocket of his jeans. As his torso was headless, Wesley would have to be identified by a family member. Mm-hmm. The grim task was left to Wesley's older sister, Shannon, who ID'd him by his tattoos. Still, a post-mortem would ensure they ID'd him correctly. Yeah, I, that's something that I, I can't grasp, the having to ID a family member or a close friend who, who's been uh, killed or murdered or just, like, it's... Even just dead. Just dead. That would be something that I would struggle with I- incredibly, and I, I don't know if I would be able to get over it. Police held off publicly identifying Wesley for a few more days, but someone put up a Facebook page, R.I.P. Wesley Hollum, IDing Wesley as the body in the creek. Mm. Only a day after skipping town, Miro was caught speeding in Thunder Bay. Miro and the other occupants of the car were acting strangely and being evasive with police. They were held while Thunder Bay police contacted the cops back in the Sioux. Good, good. Sure enough, people have been talking already. There were a lot of people at that house at 30 Wellington Street East that night. A violent death at a party was gossip that was way too hot to stay hush-hush for long. Oh, I there's no way. No. There's no way that stays quiet. Miro was flown back to the Sioux on January 14th on outstanding warrants. On January 17th, Ronald Mitchell was also arrested on suspicion of second-degree murder, and he too was sent back to the Sioux. He appeared in bail court the next day. Mm. Witnesses were being interviewed and OPP helicopters and regular patrol officers were scouring the area looking for the rest of Wesley Hollum's remains. On January 27th, police asked for help from the public via Crime Stoppers to run down items that could help in the investigation. The items being sought were ominous in themselves, pointing at someone covering up a crime. They were blue power tools, 
blue canvas tool bag, blue plastic tarps, latex gloves, bottles of bleach, clothing including shirts, shoes, jackets, pants, and a red Detroit Red Wings hat. Edged weapons are similar hand tools, the carpet liner for the trunk of a car, white plastic garbage bags with red tags. I can only imagine walking into Home Depot with that list and, hey, could you give me a hand? Yeah. Where can I find these items? Uh, Cops began looking at a garbage dump in nearby Dafter, Michigan. Dylan Jocko was picked up and taken into custody after stealing a truck and crashing it into a house on John Street on January 29th. Hmm. Sharp as a tack. Well, those houses come out of nowhere. (laughs) Yeah, just jumped out in front of me, I guess. They do that, they do that. Eventually, all three men would be charged with the first-degree murder of Wesley Hallam and with offering an indignity to a human body. I'd say. Cops were still gathering evidence. In March, as mentioned previously, Wesley's head and foot were found in the Michigan landfill. Hmm. From Northern Hoot. The police investigation involved about 200 officers, 200 witnesses, and 90,000 pages of case brief that included video and perhaps the lengthiest preliminary hearing in Canadian history to the tune of $3 million plus. Oh, wow. The demeanor of the accused during the long preliminary proceedings was not that of contrite men. Yeah, I wasn't envisioning them being very contrite. In court, throughout the hearings, all three would make faces at each other in the prisoner's box, Mm. sometimes bursting into laughter. Jerks. Mitchell would doodle on scraps of paper, and Jocko would just begin giggling out of nowhere. What? What slime balls? As things went on, cops felt they had a great chance at a first-degree murder convictions for all three. Oh, yeah, I would think. In July 2016, the Sault Ste. Marie cops overheard the accused talking about a plea deal in the paddy wagon while they were being shuttled to and from court. Hmm. Police had no idea this was even being discussed and were disgusted at the possibility. Cops had been completely shut out by the Crown. Hmm. On July 28, 2016, a surprise came as all three men agreed to plead guilty to manslaughter and offering an indignity to a human body. One of the most heinous crimes to have ever taken place in the Sioux was boiled down to a simple plea deal. Which is just that I'm staying. Like, it would seem like an easy murder in the first. Well, let's keep going, Scott. Wow. The Hallam family, Sioux St. Marie police, and supporters in the community were disgusted. Yeah, rightly so. This was not justice for Wesley. No. People in the courtroom screamed and cried, calling the defendants goofs, (laughs) and someone yelled, There is no honorable presiding judge in this house today. Yeah, I can understand their outrage. Sandra Hallam and her daughter, Shannon, were so distraught and loudly wailing, they had to be let out of the courtroom. The 19-page, quote, agreed statement of facts was read into evidence. According to police and Wesley's family, it left out important pieces of the case that the police felt would have put the three defendants away for a very long time. Before sentencing... The three were asked if they had anything to say. Only Mitchell spoke up. He said, I'm sincerely sorry. I'm not the man I was. Oh, well, there. Oh, everything's better now. No, yeah, well, no, it isn't. On July 29, 2016, Eric Miro, Dylan Jocko, and Ron Mitchell were sentenced to 10 years, given time served and other considerations. In Miro and Jocko's case, considerations were made for their indigenous heritage. Here's some audio of a press conference held by Sault Ste. Marie Police and Sandra Hallam after the pleas. Sandra just kind of sums it all up. Good evening. I want to first say that today should be a happy day for my family. However, we are devastated. I would like to thank the Sault Ste. Marie Police and the OPP for all their hard work and time they put into my son's case. It is no reflection on them that an injustice has occurred today. I am horrified that these three men will walk back into our community sometime soon. I think the city of Sault Ste. Marie should be afraid. But my son, his friends, and we the family have received a true life sentence. I struggle to make sense of the Crown's decision to accept a plea deal. I feel horrified that it is at the expense of my son's life and my family's lives. Thank you to all of those who have shown us support. And we the family would now like some time to heal as this five-and-a-half-year journey has been exhausting for all of us. 
Thank you. So yeah, yeah. Well said, Sandra. How, like, how respectful could she have been? Like, that's incredible. Like, yeah, I'd be coming that out. She was that composed. Yeah, I'd be coming out with just such anger, mm-hmm. and, and she was so composed and so well spoken and so accurate. The chief of police. Robert Keach spoke next. He gave his condolences to the Hallam family and voiced his displeasure with Crown attorneys for making this kind of deal without police input. Yeah. But he also mentioned, as soon as the police hand the case to the Crown attorneys, it's up to them what they do with it. Yeah. It was all for naught. The gavel had fallen. In another slap in the face, Wesley's mother did not get the rest of Wesley's remains, his feet and head, back until after the plea deal. They had been kept for over five years as key pieces of evidence. Oh, uh, okay. I don't... She couldn't really put her son physically to rest, let alone have any spiritual closure. Yeah, yeah, I can totally get behind her. Ron Mitchell's release was set for October 17th, 2017, and Miro and Jocko were to be released on November 28th, 2017. That's just terrifying. Yes. That's last year. Yeah. They're mm-hmm. all out. Miro was arrested and held on weapons charges in early 2018. Interestingly, there was Sandra Hallam in court to watch Miro, her son's killer, face new charges. So he gets out, and there he is again, just like everybody said he was going to do. I'm just, I'm full of anger right now. This is why I was angry too. Ten bloody years and time served. Yeah. Like. A little more than two years. With such evidence. Like, oh my God, nerd rage over here. (laughs) As Miro passed Sandra in the hallway of the courthouse, escorted by two guards, she said something that nobody could quite make out. The response from Miro was telling. He said, F you. Jeez. And Sandra then told him he was a goof, to which Miro replied, get a life. Good on you, Sandra. (sighs) Go face the guy. Wesley Hallam, like all of us, was a complex individual who may have struggled more than some. Brandishing a knife with a swastika on it is not an offense punishable by death either. No, absolutely not. It's something you can get upset at a friend over and call them out on and say, what the hell, man? I have Jewish heritage, and though I think it's repugnant and in bad taste, I don't think that Wesley deserved to die. Absolutely not. Sure, he was involved in drugs and known to be violent himself, that doesn't mean he deserved to die. Nope. I myself was in and around that lifestyle in my teens and early 20s. Does that mean my life would have been worth less had I been murdered at the time? Nope. Well, the system seems to be telling us so. In effect, the judge from this case said so too. In justifying his decision on the sentencing, Justice J. McMillan wrote, the abhorrent events of January 7th and 8th, 2011 should serve to demonstrate the inherent hazards and risks of the culture and lifestyle arising through the abuse of illicit drugs in a subculture that too often ends in violence and tragedy. Some lives do not get to be lived. Holy F. Right. Yikes. That is infuriating. That's victim blaming is what it that absolutely is. absolutely is. 100%. So Holy rather than fix this culture, this subculture, this criminalized culture, we'll just say, you know what? They're busy killing Some each other. lives don't, do not get to be lived. A judge said those words. There was more words after that, but I yes. Guess. Like saying, it, it's okay. They're disposable. If some go, some go. That's the whole thing about the disposable humans, according to the judicial system here in Canada. Well, I think, I think, uh, I'm just so mad about globally it. that that's the same uh, challenge facing a lot but, of. But uh, we're, we're here system. to talk about Canada. This is the place that we can fix, so let's fix it. Sure. Uh, the discrepancies in police investigation and what the Crown and Defence agreed to as fact yep. are also disturbing to me as a Canadian who'd like to maintain some sort of faith in our justice system. Absolutely. There's no disputing that Wesley was disarmed when he was dragged into the bathroom. Yep. If Wesley had been fatally stabbed in the initial row, that's manslaughter. But as some told police, the fatal stabbing may have happened Afterward, while Wesley was in the tub, mm-hmm. I mean, he was screaming and crying, yep. you know, and somebody who's bled out already is not 
going to be able to scream and cry, no, no. especially with a sliced carotid artery yes. and, and uh, jugular vein. Yeah. That's murder and murder in the first as they dragged him in there to slaughter him. Yep. Who knows what the real motivations of the crown were here? Perhaps the proceedings had been too long and expensive already. It was my initial thought was, you know, why make this plea deal when you've got cases have been won on less? Yep. Hard to think of any other reason other than they were like, well, let's just save some money. Right. A plea deal was yeah. a way to put it to bed. Yeah. But at what cost? The family's health and, and well-being. Oh, well, not only that. Wesley's mother is without a son. Yep. Wesley's sister is without a brother, and Wesley's son is without a father. Exactly. You know, and Wesley is without a life, and yep. these three are walking around. It just, it's infuriating. I've said that a few times, but I stand by like that. That really gets my goat. And on and on it goes. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to the news organizations, northernhoot.com and suetoday.com for their coverage of the case. It was quite extensive and excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't a lot of coverage of this case nationally, but there darn well should have been, especially the way it turned out. Yeah, exactly. Many of the facts were gleaned from those two sources as well as court documents. So thanks to them. I don't, uh, yeah, I don't understand how there wasn't more uh, uproar around this. Actually, what Sam mentioned to me about the Sioux, it, you never hear anything about it outside of it because it's sort of isolated. It's like this isolated yeah. little place. Yeah, absolutely. And the big metropolis of Vancouver and Toronto and, and Montreal probably don't care about a place like the Sioux. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. You know? That's true. But they have stories to tell too. Yeah, so absolutely. Thank you, Sam Meadows, for bringing this to my attention. And thank you to our other listeners who wanted us to talk about this. This was a really, really great story. Yeah, uh, very frustrating and challenging because of the plea deal. But uh, I think it's a story that needed to be told. For sure. Before we go, we want to give some shout-outs to our new Patreon patrons. This week's good eggs are Krista Massey, uh, like Mass, then E, from Madisonville in the grand old U.S. of A. Yeehaw. <laughs> Hello to Krista's husband, Curtis. Also a fan of the show. He emailed me yeah. to say Krista hasn't heard her shout out yet. Oh. She was on the list for this week. Yeah. So Jeez. so there it is. But, wow. well, but Curtis, it, Curtis had your back, Krista. Yeah. Uh, Krista and Curtis, uh, glad you're both fans. And thank you. Thank you for supporting the show. Oh my God, yes. Jordan Taylor from Rockwood, Ontario. Apparently we did miss her somehow previously. Hmm. She messaged me to let me know that she did get her stickers though. Well, so she got her stickers. Now you've had your shout out. Too. Yeah. There, <laughs> Jordan. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you. Uh, Ryan MacArthur from Calgary, Alberta. Oh, hey, Ryan. And the Flames put a pounding on the Canucks in, uh, in game two. I didn't even know season. it had started, That's, which is sad. Well, uh, the Canucks are not going to do so well this year. No. They I can don't. score goals. They just can't seem to help them being scored on them. Well, that's a problem. Yeah. So it's like they've gone from having a great goaltender and uh, low goal scoring to high goal scoring and a, a goaltender that could be, I'm sorry, not could to go, be replaced by a bag of pucks. Not not to go too far off on a tangent, but I remember watching an interview with Grant Fear many, many moons oh, ago. Oh, here we go. Talking about how uh, he's like, back in, he's like, it's such a different world being a goalie now. He's like, back in my day, I could let in seven goals. It didn't matter. We got eight. Yeah, because he was he had Gretzky in well, front of that, him. And, and like, they were such high-scoring games and yeah. stuff. It was like nobody cared about the seven because we got eight. Yeah. Maggie James, thank you so much for becoming a supporter of the show. You didn't leave your address, though. We'll need that for your stickers. So <laughs> uh, leave me a message on Patreon or just update your, your stuff. And thank you so much, Maggie. Thank you. Thank you. Georgia Clark from Cheltenham, Victoria, Australia. Well, another Aussie. Yeah, and here's Welcome, Georgia. Here's somebody who I was uh, chatting with today who wanted me to say her name. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's I believe Francesca Schle. See, I couldn't do it. Francesca Schleiss. Schleiss. Yeah, I think it's Schleiss. I think it's Schleiss. That's what's, that's what's Francesca. French, but see, it's a tongue twister because of the schleiss. There's after. a lot of sh So she, she knew she knew that I was going <laughs> to screw it up. <laughs> anyway, Francesca Schleiss from Linden, Washington. 
just over the border, yo. What up, Francesca? Francesca? We could probably wave to her from here. Uh, I, I, let's do it. We're doing it right now. Did you see that? Did no, you see she it? didn't see it. Boo. <laughs> Amber Muir from Sydney, Australia. Thank you, Amber. Thanks, Amber. Yep. And uh, I want to say a special thank you to Jennifer from Indiana who sent us all kinds of treats and goodies in our Yumberyard exchange. Woo-woo. It was fantastic. Uh, I've been trying to lay off the treats, but <laughs> now I'm going to go back toward the uh, the land of the uh, insulin dependent. <laughs> yeah, it's, so it's yeah, it's wrong good. season for a treat avoidance. I know, Halloween. Yeah. I love it so much. So do I. Thank you so much to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. You have no idea how much. If you want to help support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Or for a one-time support, you can send us some donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com, or just email us there. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. I'm updating it with our new logo. Beautiful logo. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search Dark Poutine. Tell your friends about us. And those five-star reviews on iTunes always help. Muchos gracias. You can subscribe to us uh, on your favorite podcast directory like iTunes Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Spotify. And don't forget... Come join the Umbriard. Do it. We got to hit a thousand here soon. Oh, we're getting close. Anyway, it's awesome. And this was a great story, and I got so wound up writing this. I can understand why. I can understand why I got wound up listening to it. Yeah. I got, I got. I'm actually a little like, these guys are out. It's scary. It's terrifying. Yeah, it's scary. Like I, I, I actually got like I, I, less talky in this and more because I was pulled into the story and the frustration. So here's a picture of one mm, of them. Here's yeah. a picture of another. Jesus. Look like upstanding fellows. Fine, upstanding gentlemen mm. who I hope I never run into in an alleyway. Man, right? Like they're out. They're out and about doing their thing. Mm. So don't be like those guys. Be good egg, not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.